to Faith Talk with Anita. Thank you for joining me on the journey. Welcome. I'm so glad you're joining me today. Over the past few weeks, I've focused on the post-resurrection stories in John's Gospel and the glimpse they give us into the lives of the disciples during their extraordinary encounters with the risen Christ. Today, I want to continue that theme and reflect on their experience of being sent on mission, which must have seemed an insurmountable undertaking. To say they felt overwhelmed is an understatement, I'm sure. It's so easy for us to imagine that the church just popped into existence immediately after the resurrection, that these people understood the mission they were called to and worked perfectly together right from the start. But that is far from reality. It took decades, actually hundreds of years, for these early Christians to form what we might recognize as the Christian church. They struggled, debated, argued, compromised, and most importantly, persevered to bring Christianity to fruition. This church history is fascinating to me. I love reflecting on the process the disciples went through to accomplish the task Jesus gave them, which has had such a profound impact on our world, to say the least. Their lives were extremely difficult. Prison or death were very real possibilities for them every day. They faced persecution simply because they were followers of Christ. But they did not give up. They persevered despite the challenges and dangers. Let's take a peek into the lives of those remarkable people and how their post-resurrection experiences spurred them to undertake this extraordinary mission. I hope you find their story as fascinating as I do. First, let me offer you a guiding thought to reflect on while contemplating the lives of our ancestors in faith. Our Christian ancestors were most certainly sent into the world by Jesus to accomplish a mission. Do you have a sense of being sent on mission. Do you believe God has a purpose and plan for your life? Hold those questions in your mind as we journey through this faith talk. Just a quick note before we start. The term Christian was not used until around the middle of the first century a few decades after 
Jesus. And even then, it was first used by non-Christians as a derogatory term for the followers of Jesus. At first, the disciples of Jesus identified themselves as followers of the way. It would take quite a while before they proudly took the term Christian on for themselves. But for our purposes, I will use the term Christians throughout this faith talk for all the followers of Jesus. To begin with, we remember that the first disciples were called by Jesus. They knew him personally. They had the opportunity to hear him speak and see the amazing work he did. They learned firsthand what it meant to be Christian. Then they had the extraordinary experience of witnessing the resurrection. They encountered the risen Christ after laying his dead body in the tomb. I don't think any of us living today can even imagine the magnitude of that experience. We can take Christ's resurrection for granted to the point that it seems ho-hum to us. But they lived through the enormity of this incredible mystery. They surely did not take any of it for granted. Some people want to dismiss the resurrection of Christ by saying it was just their minds playing tricks on them. These people wanted so badly for Jesus to still be alive that they imagined it all. Or perhaps they were brainwashed or insane. Or that the story of the resurrection was simply meant to be symbolic of something. Or that a few people got together and made the whole story up for fun. But I dispute those explanations completely because the early Christians were willing to die for their faith. And it wasn't just a few people. There were many disciples living all over Judea and Galilee. And over the years, many people did die because they would not retract their statements of faith. We can't forget that or minimize the tremendous significance of their sacrifice. Their belief and trust in Jesus were so strong, they chose death over denial and unfaithfulness. That says a lot to me. They had to have had some extremely remarkable Christ experiences for so many of them to choose prison or even death rather than deny the truth. Their passion for Christ 
was burning within them. That passion gave them the strength, courage, and hope they needed to persevere. It is precisely their passion and perseverance which fills me with hope, allowing me to profess wholehearted belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their sacrifice gives me the strength, courage, and determination to live my life as a faithful Christian, 100% convinced of and devoted to the power and glory of God. My faith, which stands on the witness of those courageous first Christians, defines me and affects my entire life, just as theirs did for them. Like them, I am a Christian first and foremost. Everything else extends from that. I would love to hear what you believe about this. Please leave a comment and share your thoughts. We remember that immediately following the resurrection, this group of believers were locked away, hiding in fear. They were afraid to go out. So despite their locked doors, Jesus came to them. He assured them that no matter what the circumstances may be, he would always be with them. So they left their locked room and headed for the fishing boat. And again, Jesus came to them and began to teach them how to be church together. He showed them that they would have to work together to take on the task of continuing Jesus's ministry without his physical presence. But he assured them again, he would be with them to guide them through it all. We saw Peter begin to take a leadership role within the group. Now, as we continue to read John's story, we see that immediately following the breakfast on the shore, Jesus took Peter aside for a personal conversation. Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him, and three times Peter answered yes. After each of Peter's declarations of love, Jesus instructed him to feed and tend his sheep. Scholars note that Jesus used different verbs for the words love. He began by asking Peter to commit to agape love, which is the self-sacrificing love that marks the true shepherd, as Jesus modeled. But Peter was only capable of promising filial love, which has a narrower sense of friendship or affection. Wes Howard Brook, in his book, John's Gospel and the Renewal of the Church, suggests that Jesus might have been asking for more than Peter could comprehend 
and commit to. So he eventually accepted the filial love that Peter was able to give. Isn't that just like Jesus? He never requires more than we are capable of. He accepts us as we are and continues to help and guide us on our way. He knows us well and loves us far too much to demand more than we can give. That's a good thing, to be sure. It appears that this threefold declaration of love was Jesus' way of letting Peter make up for denying him three times. I'm sure Peter needed this. He must have been weighed down with a heavy sense of guilt and regret. This act of contrition probably gave Peter a huge sense of relief. It should be a relief for us as well, knowing that Jesus will always accept our repentance, no matter how many times we deny or turn away from him. He assures us that God's love, forgiveness, and mercy are infinite and eternal, available to all of us, all the time. The Catholic Church understands this interaction between Jesus and Peter to be Jesus' way of appointing Peter as the supreme shepherd of the entire church. As such, the church recognizes Peter as the first pope. Clearly, Peter did take on a leadership role within the Christian community. We see this in the post-resurrection stories and in the book of Acts of the Apostles. But to say he was the first pope goes a bit too far for me. The church didn't even exist yet. And certainly there was no pope at that time. This is a pretty hot subject, and I don't have time to get into it all today. So I'll do an entire faith talk on the Pope and bishops sometime in the future. Stay tuned for that. An important question these first Christians had to work out was leadership. We know Peter had authority within this early Christian community, but he was not the only leader. We know from the Acts of the Apostles that James was one of the more powerful leaders within the early church. And many people believe Mary Magdalene to have been a leader as well. As a matter of fact, there is a gospel according to Mary Magdalene. Let's look at the conversation that immediately follows Jesus and Peter's Do You Love Me exchange. John tells us that the beloved disciple is now on the scene. Jesus had just told Peter to follow him. And who should be right beside him following Jesus but the beloved disciple? Who, according to Howard Brook, was never actually called an apostle or one of the twelve. The question is, 
does that prevent him from having any authority or taking on a leadership role? Peter seemed to get a bit jealous when he noticed the beloved disciple there beside him. So he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus responded, What if I want him to remain until I come? What concern is it of yours? You follow me. Howard Brooke contends that this interaction was all about authority and leadership. In this exchange, Jesus appears to be reprimanding Peter, letting him know that he, Jesus, was the one in charge. Peter was being given some authority, but he clearly wasn't the only one that Jesus would be working through. Howard Brooke offers the question, could someone who had never been an apostle be seen as having authority within the community? Remember that it was the beloved disciple, not Peter, who remained faithful and stood at the foot of the cross and who ran into the empty tomb ahead of Peter. Does he deserve to have authority within the community? An important question for these early Christians to work out. Clearly, in the Joannine community, this beloved disciple had plenty of authority. Later on, we'll see Paul taking on a role of authority. And he was never one of the twelve. He certainly wasn't a disciple during Jesus' lifetime. The Catholic Church looks to Peter and the other official apostles, the twelve or eleven after Judas's betrayal, as the primary authorities in the church. And that would continue down the centuries through what is known as apostolic succession, meaning formal authority lies only with the apostles and those who subsequently took on their roles down through the centuries. That continues to be a subject of some conflict today. Should the bishops be the only true authority in the church? I have my opinions on that, and as I said, I'll share them in an upcoming episode. It's important to remember here that the church was not just made up of the 11 apostles or just select men. No, the church was a whole community made up of people who were as different from one another as they could possibly be. They were all Jews at this point, but most of them probably wouldn't have associated with each other outside of this faith community. Some of them were quite poor. Others were wealthy and elite. The only thing holding them together was their faith and trust in Jesus. Jesus was the glue, to be sure. In chapter 1 of Acts of the Apostles, we have a description of that first community. We are told they devoted themselves with one accord to prayer, 
together with some women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This tells us a lot about these people. The fact that there were men and women in the group made this community quite unusual for that society because men and women didn't typically associate with each other outside their immediate family. But in this new Jesus movement, they viewed each other as family. So they accepted one another and treated one another as intimate family members. This was groundbreaking, totally unheard of at the time. But Jesus himself had been groundbreaking, hadn't he? Despite their differences, Jesus was able to hold these people together and give them their final instructions before his ascension. We find this in the story of the Great Commissioning at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus said to them, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. So there we have the mission of the church. Teach, baptize, and spread Jesus' message throughout the entire world. These new Christians now had a plan a mission statement. And it was up to them to figure out how to achieve it. Thankfully, their passion drove them to persevere. If they think they've had conflicts up to this point, they will be shocked at what lies ahead of them. For example, another big question they'll need to work out is who can be a part of this faith community? Is it just a Jewish movement, or can anyone join? This question, and their compromising decision, is one that would impact the church and the world forever. I will leave you today with a few questions for your further reflection. But first, let me say this. I hope you will join me next time as we continue to delve into the exciting and captivating adventures of our first Christians and their quest to be church. That's when we will explore that question about church membership. We'll look at the Ascension, the Pentecost event, the Council of Jerusalem, and the church in the time of Constantine the Great, the first Christian emperor of Rome. So much excitement and intrigue. So many thrills, twists, and turns. So much conflict and compromise. You won't want to miss it. Now, 
a few questions for your further reflection. I hope they will be helpful for you. The first Christians were passionate about their faith in Christ, which gave them the strength, courage, and determination to persevere in the mission he entrusted to them. Am I passionate for Christ? What would I be willing to endure for my faith? Jesus sent his disciples on a mission to continue his ministry. Have I heard God's call to mission? What is God calling me to do? Jesus asked Peter to commit to agape love, the self-sacrificing love that Christ has for us. Am I able to give God my undying agape love, or like Peter, am I still in the filial friendship love phase? What might this agape love look like in my life? Finally, Jesus offered Peter a threefold apology opportunity to make up for his three denials. Do I truly believe I am worthy of God's infinite and eternal love, forgiveness, and mercy? How does this make me feel? Let us pray. Lord God, thank you for the boundless and unending love and mercy you offer us. Help us, as members of your church, to show this same love and mercy to others. May we be your hands, feet, and voice in this world, bringing your love to all we meet. Fill our hearts with passion for you and give us the strength to persevere in the work you have called us to. We ask you to strengthen and guide your church on earth as we continue the mission you entrusted us with. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you will join me next time as we continue our glimpse into the forming of the church. Until then, I will be praying for you each day. May God bless you.